2: Vice President of Creative Strategy, Innovation, and Business Development at The Second City. This podcast is about collaborative conversations, discovering connections, and building a better future. This is Getting the Yes And. My guest today on the podcast is Jill Stoddard, who is the founder and director of the Center for Stress and Anxiety Management, a multi-site outpatient psychotherapy clinic specializing in acceptance and commitment therapy, otherwise known as ACT. And cognitive and behavioral therapy for anxiety and related issues. She's is an award-winning teacher and recognized ACT trainer. She has co-authored articles and books in the ACT, CBT, anxiety, trauma, and pain categories. And her latest book is called Imposter No More: Overcome Self-Doubt and Imposterism to Cultivate a Successful Career. Enter the pod.
1: It's just another better left unsaid. Days can't be counted by the tattoo rent. Tomorrow's just another, like the one that comes next. The corner of the highway that leads to the job at the desk by the
2: boss with the elegant watch. The tick of the clock and the tick of the clock mark the moments till the ticking stops. Jill Stoddard, welcome to the show.
0: Hi, Kelly. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to be here.
2: So, some years back, I gave a TEDx talk, and I presented the idea that 99% of the people in the world think they are frauds, myself included. Um, We think we're bad friends, bad parents, bad colleagues, bad spouses. And then I suggested that the 1% that don't think that are probably the most dangerous people on the planet. Um, I have no science to back up this claim, and that point was actually brought home to me after the talk when I overheard a couple arguing in the lobby. I heard the husband distinctly say, he just made up that 99% thing. He's an improv guy, not a scientist. <laughs> now, you 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 have degrees uh, next to your name. I'm not really that far off, right?
0: You are not that far off. So what the science says is up to 70% of people feel like frauds. But okay. I think where you're actually probably right about the 99% were all those other things you said. So mm-hmm. this, like, I'm not good enough story seems to actually be nearly universal for all humans. And then, yes, there's this tiny percentage of people who maybe are narcissists or sociopaths. I mean, I don't have science to back that up, but that's a hypothesis that probably that small portion of people that don't have any form of an inner critic are those types of people and are dangerous. Yes, I would agree with you on that.
2: And there is a a term for many of those people, and it's called the Dunning-Kruger effect, right? Yep. Can you explain to our audience? I mean, they've heard me reference it before, but I haven't done it in a while.
0: Yes. So the Dunning-Kruger effect is basically it's a cognitive bias where there's a failure in self-awareness where people who have limited knowledge or competence or skills wrongly overestimate their knowledge or competence or skills in a given area. And then because they lack the competence, they lack the ability to recognize their deficiencies right? So like, they don't question their legitimacy. Um, but you know, the easy way to think of it is like, they're not smart enough to know they're not smart.
2: <laughs> that is a perfect way to describe <laughs> yeah, it. Yeah, <laughs> And you are probably describing a good 75% of my bosses uh, over time that I've had. Oh, there.
0: that's tough. That's tough.
2: Yeah. I, you I- know, it, but, but I don't, <clears throat> but it tends to be true. I mean, again, again and I'm talking about a lot of um, uh, cisgendered white men. Um, and I know that there's some uh, 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 research that sort of backs us up, too, in terms of if you if you if, you know, we talk about being growing up on third base or, or whatever. But if you if you grow up and, and you have these things and you go to good schools and you just assume, of course, it's because, you know, of, of your excellence and you never assume that there might be some sort of systemic thing going on that allowed you to walk in to a place that, uh, another person simply can't, can't get, get by the barriers.
0: Yeah, totally. I, you know, I tell the story in in the book about telling my dad, who's a straight cis white male, all the things uh, that I was giving a talk on imposter syndrome And he was like, huh, what's that? And I figured once I explained it to him, he would recognize the concept, even if he didn't know what it was called. And and so I explained it to him and he was just dumbfounded. And, you know, he was an entrepreneur who started and sold companies, but it never occurred to him that he, that it wasn't his place to do that. And, Mm. and that's not his fault, right? Like we all just sort of swim in the cultural waters that we swim in and, you know, if you're part of the majority groups, you don't really get messages that you don't belong at all the tables. But if you're female or transgendered or gay or black or, you know, any person of color, an immigrant, a disabled person, there are overt and covert messages across your lifetime that maybe you don't belong in certain spaces. And so it stands to reason that you would then develop these kinds of ideas like, I'm a fraud, I don't belong here, I'm going to be outed at any moment. The research on this is unfortunately very limited. So this Mm -hmm. is still sort of a hypothesis. I hope people will take up this mantle and actually do some good science to research this, but it, it seems to be a pretty reasonable hypothesis.
2: That's right. So people often ask me like, okay, so what are you reading right now? Who you are interviewing? And I, and I told them you, and I would say this book is about imposter syndrome. However, I am, after reading this book, going to try to not use the word syndrome. So t- tell us why, why that particular moniker might be problematic.
0: I, I love it. And I hope this can be like a whole cultural rebranding. Well, first of all, if 70% of us have it, it can't be a syndrome because it's just normal. Yeah. Right. Like if yeah. this is if this is a nearly universal human experience, then it's not some like disordered psyche. So that's kind of number one. You know, the other and, and I think the history of this is fascinating. When Pauline Clance and Suzanne Imes first identified this phenomenon, they called it the imposter phenomenon, Mm. but they thought that it only appeared in high-achieving women. And so lo and behold, shortly after something that appeared among high-achieving women was called a phenomenon, our culture rebranded it to a syndrome, right? Uh They made this like, oh, women don't have confidence. They must have a syndrome. And I don't think that that's a coincidence, right? Right. And so- if if the hypothesis is accurate that this may develop out of experiences with discrimination or oppression, then that is another reason that it should not be called a syndrome, right? This is not about a disordered psyche. This is a normal human reaction, especially for people who have had experiences of being marginalized.
2: Right, right, right. So your personal imposterism story, I'll use that term, begins when you applied to a PhD program at BU. Can you tell us a little bit about that?
0: Yes, it's getting easier for me to tell. I'll I'll admit the first time I told it, it it gave me so much anxiety because Mm. I think everyone is going to think this is true and they're all going to know I I didn't belong in this situation. So um, I had a mentor in my master's program say, now, listen, you're going to go off to graduate school to to your PhD program and you're going to think... I don't belong here. Everybody's better than me. And my eyes just got wide and I went, oh my God, how does he know that? Is he like reading Mm. my mind? This had already happened to me. And he never gave this experience a name, but it was the first time that I realized this is like a thing maybe other people experience. And where it came from for me in that context is I applied to this very competitive program that I never thought I'd get into in a billion years. And it was, I was living in San Diego at the time and it was in Boston, which is home for me. Mm -hmm. And I didn't tell my parents because I didn't want any pressure to come back home. And then the guilt ate away at me. And I finally confessed to my dad that I was applying to this program at Boston university to work with a guy named um, David Barlow. And my dad went, Dave Barlow, the clinical psychologist. And I was like, wait, what? Like He's a businessman. He doesn't know anything about Mm -hmm. psychology or mental health, but it turns out they had played golf together at the same golf club. Mm
1: -hmm. So the
0: next time he saw Dr. Barlow, he said, oh, hey, my kid is applying to your program. Fast forward a few months, I got in Mm -hmm. and that was in the year 2000. So 23 years ago. And to this day, despite racking up many achievements in the last two decades, I still feel really insecure that I did not deserve A spot in such I like felt like such a mediocre applicant. I don't know how I got that spot. It must just be because Dave played golf with my dad, which of course is not giving David Barlow very much credit, right? To think like Mm -hmm. it's sort of offensive toward him that he's just going to give away one of his twelve slots to somebody who's not going to go make him proud out in the real world, right? and rationally of course i get that but emotionally i still hold this like deep insecurity that that is the only reason i got into that program
2: and the, and this is in many ways because the the power of stories right so so we are human beings we're storytelling machines um we love stories but we also use stories to explain ourselves and the stories that we tell ourselves—they they can be w- wonderful. Um, they they can be part of a therapeutic uh, process. They can be about dealing with trauma, all that. And they can also uh, uh, screw us up. And and I think that's a, what what you're kind of getting at. This is the you say, quote in the book. Unfortunately, old self stories are pretty hardwired, and humans aren't manufactured with a delete button. Oh, if we only had a delete button, right? Oh,
0: if only. Like eternal sunshine of the spotless mind,
2: yeah, Just, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah zap
0: it right out of there, yeah, no, it's so true. and and, you know, I think importantly, these stories are meant to protect us and keep us safe, right? When your mind is saying you're not good enough or you're a fraud or whatever it may be, it's really in an effort to protect you from humiliation or failure or rejection. You know, we humans are social beings. And since the dawn of humanity, there is an advantage to, you know, we now know through loads of research that like the number one factor that predicts overall physical and mental health and well-being is relationships. So, so much of our mind is trying to protect us from anything that threatens our connection with other human beings. And so, you know, if I'm outed as a fraud, if I'm incompetent, if I'm inadequate, then if people discover that they're going to reject and abandon me and I'll be alone. And so you know, these stories are designed to protect us. They just unfortunately don't do a very good job and and also get in the way of us really being able to thrive and live the, the lives we want to live.
2: I think another thing that was interesting reading this book, and this has come up a lot in the last few years, is a realization that words are so important and that our uh sometimes our associations with certain words lead to assumptions that can be really wrong um and you talk about this with the idea of uh positive and negative reinforcement reinforcement learning generally speaking and and because and i, I was guilty of this right when when i imme- i immediately assigned a value to those two things mm-hmm. when they are valueless in the same, in the same way we bias, like people assume, well, bias is just bad. You're like, well that's not really the case or stress. Mm -hmm. That's not really the case. So talk to us about positive and negative reinforcement and what we get wrong about that.
0: Well, what you often hear people say is, oh, that's an example of negative reinforcement. So I think the example that, that most commonly comes up is let's say you see a kid having a tantrum in the store because he wants a toy and the mother is, um, yelling at the kid and that actually makes them scream more, Uh you know, when people think you're saying negative reinforcement. So people will assume that like, if a person is yelling at their kid, this is an example of negative reinforcement because the act of yelling is something that's negative or aversive. But really the word negative just means to take something away. So mm-hmm. positive reinforcement, you're adding something, negative reinforcement, you're taking something away. and reinforcement just means whatever that thing is you're doing, the consequence increases the likelihood that a behavior will happen again.
2: Yeah, so that so, so that that could be that could be um, ultimately a, a good thing or a bad thing, depending on a variety of contexts. It I mean, depends so,
0: on your target, yeah. the target behavior that you want. like if you want more of a behavior or you want, less of a behavior. Um, yes. And, and, you know, anything could be a positive or negative reinforcer or punisher, you know, what, what's reinforcing for me might be punishing for you and vice versa. Right. Right, So we can't assume, you know, if I yell at my daughter, she might decrease her behavior. If I yell at my son, he might increase his behavior. So what's a punisher for her is a reinforcer for him. So it's all very context specific.
2: When I talk about improvisation, uh, whether I'm giving a keynote or I'm on a podcast or or whatever, I'm often using phrases that are well-worn at Second City that we use in the classroom. Things like, you've got to learn to play the scene you're in, not the scene you want to be in. We have to replace blame with curiosity. Um, uh, We have to um, uh, be fiercely in the moment. We've got to make our partner look good. Um, And it strikes me that Many of those terms could be underneath this bucket uh, that you refer to as psychological flexibility.
0: Yeah, that's exactly right. the thought I had as you were saying. That. I'm like, oh, that's so ACT consistent. That's so, con- so yeah. psychological flexibility. Well, and talk about
2: talk about ACT and talk about yeah. psychological flexibility. So that, yeah,
0: so psychological flexibility is the goal of ACT, which is acceptance and commitment therapy. And so psychological flexibility, it's really simple. It's 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 not an easy thing to do, but it is a simple concept, which is just our ability to be in this present moment, because it's the only one that we actually have, Yep. with all of our thoughts, feelings, physiological sensations, urges, fully and without defense. like We notice they're there, we allow them to be there without doing anything to control them in any way. And then we make conscious, deliberate choices about what we're going to do or not do, um, based on our values. And values are just like what you want to stand for, what you want to be about in the world, your actions and the qualities of actions that represent the me that you most deeply want to be. So I think everything you just said is really in line with that.
2: And and because f- you can't fight it, right? It, it 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 will exist. I was thinking about this in the sense of, I've never done martial arts, but what I understand is, that is uh, it's almost purely defensive in its sense of like no, we know where the blow is coming, and we kind of go with it and take it in mm-hmm. because and 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 you know and certainly ideas in Buddhism are are you know sort of flow flow in here as as well but it's it's because like there's no way to eliminate the negative thoughts period right
0: a hundred percent correct and There are some, you know, in in traditional cognitive behavioral therapy, people are taught to sort of replace unhelpful thoughts with more helpful thoughts. And in some cases that can work, right? If I'm sitting in traffic and I'm thinking, oh, this sucks and I'm going to be late and don't these stupid people have jobs? Why is everyone on the road? You know, I can catch that and go, okay, getting upset about this is not going to get you anywhere faster, it's not the end of the world. It's just traffic. You'll get there when you get there. And that will actually make me feel a little bit better. But typically when we try to do the exact same thing to these deeper, like I am inadequate, I am not good enough, those kinds of thoughts, it just backfires. You know, you, if when I told you that I thought I only got into graduate school because my dad knew the director, you could have sat here and read off my whole resume and told me like all, all the reasons that I did get in on my own merit and all the amazing things I've done since then. And my brain will just go, well, yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, but. And I can just give you just as much data to discount everything you said. And that's just what brains do. Mm-hmm. So we tend to get, we, we end up giving the thoughts more power when we try so hard to change the content of them and what psychological flexibility and act are about are changing our relationship to those experiences instead, like kind of letting go of the battle against them and just letting them, letting what what is already there anyway to just be there and not letting it affect your behavior and your choices.
2: I was talking to Michael Gervais yesterday, so he he's coming on the podcast. Um, he has his own podcast. He is a sports psychologist and famously worked with the Seattle uh, football team when they won the Super Bowl. And his book is about uh, fear of other people's opinions. So not just dis- not not dissimilar from what we're talking about mm-hmm. here. And and you know I kept stressing one of the powerful aspects of improvisational training is that it's embodied. And that certainly, you know, when I first entered this work, I was all about brain, uh, both for myself and the things I was seeing. And then over time, just realized more and more and more, uh, the body is kind of showing up first. It's yeah. not to not, not say the brain. And you say in the book, quote, our minds and bodies can be obnoxiously compelling. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I think that's what you're referring to, which is, wow, this is like, there's, there's a bunch going on here. And it ain't just all up in the noggin.
0: Yeah, no, that's very true. And when you said that, that it's about being embodied, I got literal chills on my Mm. body. So that's sort of like a nice parallel process. And that's, I call that my body barometer. It's usually telling me, you know, that something, there's something important that has just entered into this space. You know, the first time I ever noticed it was the first time I ever sat with a client and did clinical work. And I just had chills. And I knew in that moment, like, this is my calling. This is really what I'm meant to do and and that body barometer hasn't steered me wrong since and I think that's an example of that and we often ignore those things or if they're uncomfortable then we do our best to escape or avoid them and you know that can really come at a cost it can keep us stuck it can keep us you know from like it, it just kind of restricts the the repertoire of opportunities that we have if we're so focused on not experiencing the internal experiences that are uncomfortable for us.
2: You also write in the book, quote, we don't escape being human without a generous he- helping of pain, but sometimes we get to choose how much we suffer, end quote. Um, t- talk about that. What? It, what it, ha- how, do, how do we choose how much we suffer?
0: Yeah. So you mentioned earlier that there are some elements in this book that are similar to Buddhism and that is spot on. And yeah. there is a lot of act. That is, um, you know, act was influenced by a number of different traditions, and one of those is Buddhism and and other, you know, old ancient Eastern traditions. And so, in Buddhism, they say pain times resistance equals suffering, mm. and pain is just part of being human. I mean, we come mm. out of the womb screaming, literally our very first do. experience in this world. And if we're not, it actually means something's terribly wrong. Mm-hmm. And so you don't get to be a human being in this life and not do pain. It's just part of the deal. But resistance is optional, Mm. right? And so if we have pain and we have resistance, we have a lot of suffering. But if we have pain without resistance, then we just have pain.
2: Interesting. Uh, my, my wife has a book coming out next year and it's called funnier, which is about her comedy theory Um, and part of her comedy theory is that all comedy is three elements. And if you look at it like a mixing board, um, you have, um, recognition, some level of kind of truth, you have pain and you have distance. And it's, and it's, you know, so, so with regard to those three elements are always there for, for there to be comedy and the pain and distance thing is really in terms of like, you can dial up the pain if you've got more distance and then you have to reduce that distance when you have pain. And I think about this because while we talked about improvisation, comedy is another element of truth telling. And I think that that, that has always been a case of like, we need another lens by which to see the things that are going on the world that might be if we just sort of deal with them baldly, too painful. So when we have this sort of comedy thing, right? Uh, but what we're we're talking about pretty serious. The stuff we're laughing at is usually pretty serious.
0: Yeah. Well, what this makes me think of, so because I'm thinking, oh, I guess that would you could see that as an example of resistance, or what we call it in act is is experiential avoidance, which is anything mm-hmm. that you do or don't do to try to change your internal experience, and typically mm-hmm. that means trying to push away. Discomfort that we don't like or trying to grab on to feelings that we do want to have. And so, you know, making something serious into something more funny, you could certainly see as an example of experiential avoidance. But experiential avoidance is only problematic if it has a cost. And I think this is a brilliant example hmm. of something that doesn't have a cost. That's and right. that's when we're talking about resistance, That we're. that's what we're talking about, experiential avoidance. And so the idea is like your pain is not your problem. It's all the things you're doing because you're unwilling to have the pain that are keeping you stuck. Yeah. Right? So like if I felt very anxious about coming on to talk to you and your audience today, and I didn't like that feeling of anxiety, the best way to get rid of it is to cancel on you. Yes. And then I would get immediate relief. But I would have much more suffering because I've been looking forward to this conversation. It feels important. It's it's a, it's a tremendous – it's my mission to try mm-hmm. to share these concepts with as many people as I possibly can. I, I want to be somebody who is courageous and brave. It's important to me to connect with people, to be vulnerable. So if I had turned that down, I would get relief. But I'd be sacrificing all of these important values, this me I want to be – And that's where the suffering comes in. But if you have avoidance, that's like, it's raining out and I put up an umbrella, that's technically avoidance, but there's no cost. And it might even make it more likely that I'm going to, you know, go do the things I want to do because now I'm outside, but I'm still
2: nice and dry. Yeah. And And I I think think comedy
0: is a good example.
2: Yeah. And I think another way to look at it is comedy is a reframe. Mm. You know, it's it's, it's a a simple reframe of a particular, and usually it's a problem. Right. There's an equation of like, you know, you you think you're doing one plus one equals two. And we're kind of showing you that maybe one plus one might equal three. Um, And so and it's incongruent in that sense, which is also uneasy. Um, But and then is you you as a as a comedian are are really playing with the audience in terms of that, because if you just do the hard hitting stuff the whole time, you're going to lose them. So right. you've got to figure, I think it's George Carlin who's this wonderful phrase of, I want to take people uh, up to the line and I want to have them cross that line with me and be glad they came. Mm-hmm. And, and okay. people always forget yeah. the be glad they came. Glad so they a mean, lot of people are like, oh, I want to cross the line. It's like, yeah, that's fine. But, but, but you got to make them be glad they came. It's not just crossing the line. Right. And I think that's the difference between what I would call wise comedy and, and maybe other people call comedy. And you, you talk about Marsha uh, Linehan with this term wise mind, which made me think about this. Can you talk about uh, what that is?
0: Yeah. So wise mind is what Marsha Linehan talks about. She's a psychologist who is the um, developer of a therapy called dialectical behavior therapy or DBT Um, pretty famously talked about by Lady Gaga. So people may have heard, yep. heard of it from her a couple of years ago. So, what Marsha talks about is that we have these different states of mind and one is emotion mind which is where we have feelings and where our creativity comes from probably where some comedy comes from. Sure. And then we have rational mind or reasonable mind and this is like facts and figures and I what always pops in my head is you know balancing your checkbook and then I realize that makes me sound really old and I need a much more modern example than balancing your checkbook but you know, this is like data and pros and cons and whatnot. And so if you're only in rational mind, that's going to be problematic. Likewise, if you're only in emotion mind, that's going to be problematic. And if you picture a Venn diagram, wise mind is where these two things overlap. And it's like this kind of grounded sense of knowing, maybe a gut feeling, maybe intuition, you know, but it's that thing that sort of transcends words. That's like, you just sort of know or feel that something is right, because you've done both of these things. And I could see comedy, you have to have the facts and the figures and the logic, but also the creativity and the feeling. And when those two things interact is when you probably get good comedy.
2: My, My friend Jen Ellison kind of refers to this in her Venn diagram around comedy, as the difference between thin jokes and thick jokes. And that, you know, the, the thin jokes are like fart jokes, and not really interesting to her, yes. but thick jokes are the one that are really sort of playing with all that soil. Uh, yeah, I didn't expect to talk about comedy with you, but it is, it is but actually it shouldn't be surprising. I mean, like I, you know, I, I've been in therapy for a while and we laugh a lot. And I think it is so necessary. And, and you talk about this in, in the book, when you talk about play, um, and the quote is quote, "getting playful with our thinking is like kryptonite to the inner imposter." Mm-hmm. And I love that because yeah. really not an, we don't pay enough attention to play, especially as adults. Um, somehow true. it's equated with frivolity. Somehow it's equated with wasting time when in fact, most of our jo- basically all our jobs in the world of AI, are going to need to center around what human beings are good at. And that are all things that relate to our ability to be playful problem solvers, playful storytellers, all the things that are play centered.
0: The computers can't do. Oh, yeah. They can't That's do interesting. It. I've never thought of that before. Yeah. Yeah. And you, did you, I think you had Mike Rucker on as a guest. Did you have him on? He wrote a book called The Fun Habit. But no, maybe not. I you had, and I, I have had a lot of guests overlap on our on our podcast. I wasn't sure if he was one of them. No, I had, another, I,
2: about. I, I had another. I had another guest on who talked about the the fun uh, fun as a concept. But yeah, that that and it was a I'm sure a similar conversation, which is yeah. like this this stuff is really important, and yet it's and like it's,
0: there's science behind that. There is science behind right. It. Yeah, yeah. It's not just like oh, I think we should do more of this. There is science behind the importance of us maintaining play and creativity and fun. <laughs>
2: how do you do that for okay so you're an adult you with re- adult responsibilities uh, and you recognize the place fun are there ways that you incorporate that into your world
0: it will so like in therapy with my clients absolutely and so one of the ways we build psychological flexibility is through building willingness or acceptance that's what the acceptance part of acceptance and commitment therapy means and what that is is it's changing your relationship to your emotions, physical sensations, urges, right? So you're opening up and making space for discomfort. And so I love to do this in really playful kinds of ways. And so my favorite way, I even have it right here in my drawer, I can pull them out and show you even though we're not on video. But look, see, do you know these bean boozled jelly beans?
2: Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm.
0: So I'll play bean boozled with my clients where you spin a spinner And, you know, I have them order, we do all telehealth. So they order theirs online and we're on the computer with each other and we all have our jelly beans. And, you know, you spin the spinner and it says you have to eat the pink speckled jelly bean, but you don't know if it's going to be pomegranate or old dirty bandage. And so we eat these together, but we Mm -hmm. do it as a mindful willingness exercise. And so it sort of has this twofold, you know, they're learning a therapeutic skill, but we're also doing it in a way that like, isn't so serious, you know? And believe me, there is a lot of laughter when (laughs) when we do things like this. Sometimes I'm not wearing my glasses today. Otherwise you and I could do this, but you know, I'll have us turn our glasses upside down. And then you can practice willingness toward how it feels funny on your face, how you can't see because the prescription is not the right way. How maybe you're feeling a little embarrassed that the other person sees you looking so silly. And so it has this like dual purpose again of like, it's playful and fun, but it's also a way of building psychological flexibility and learning a therapeutic skill that you can then apply in other areas of your life outside of therapy.
2: Jill, I don't recall when we spoke last, did we talk about the origin story of Second City and Viola Spolin, the social worker who started all this stuff?
0: I don't think
2: so. I don't think so either. So so, Dude, Second although
0: City, you, it sounds familiar, you might have written about it in your book because I yeah, read Sand. Yeah, so I think I, it might have been in there, but I don't think you and I talked about it. Remind me though.
2: Yeah, so the the all these these exercises and games that we still that we taught to the founders and that we talked to Stephen Colbert and Tina Fey and you know this is still part of the curriculum and the pedagogy of Second City. Were essentially most of them were created by a social worker in the 20s and 30s by the name of Vi- Viola Spolin, whose job was to better assimilate immigrant children and kids from the you know projects of Chicago yeah. uh, to collaborate and play and this sort of idea, of sort of gamifying social and emotional skills and self regulation and all that. Um, seemed odd at a certain point, And it no longer seems odd to me. It seems like dead on.
0: Yes, totally. Everybody's finally caught on and has been doing a lot more of that.
2: Yeah. And, and, and I think, I think, in, I think in part, I think it also goes back to the embodied aspect because these games require you to be present in a room with other people moving in a room with other people and I have this observation, and I want to see if you – I've touched on a few people, and most people are. I'm finding more and more that people do not know how to walk out in the world with other people. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about? Like
0: literally walk?
2: Literally be in a space with other people and recognize how to put their bodies there. I'm getting bumped into. I'm having people block me. I'm being like, do you, like, what is what is happening here? Or even driving and having people like – cut. like what – and it's not just obnoxious behavior of trying to cut in. It's like just they don't they don't know.
0: Not paying well, maybe it's because our attention has been so hijacked by all things. Well, that's technology. one thing, right? I think it's affecting everybody's executive function in odd ways that we're maybe not
2: realizing. And two years uh not being in crowds of more than a couple people.
0: Right. Yeah. We don't know how to be with large groups of people. And yeah, I think that that's that is true. But we but I love this idea of doing anything that can be Embodied, You know, one of the ways I like to, to teach the benefits of present moment awareness is I'll, th- I, I, I don't do this as much now that I'm on telehealth, but when I was in person, because I've moved to, to Boston and I still do therapy in California, which is why yep. I'm online. Um, I would bring a blown up balloon mm-hmm. and have my adult, I only see adults, have my adult patients play the keep the balloon off the ground game Yep. and then tell them to try to worry about something. You know, so if there's somebody who's like worrying about paying their bills, they will be like, "Okay, keep the balloon off the ground and worry about paying your bills," and you can't do it. Can't do it, right? Because you can only be in one time at a time, right? Yep. Past, present, or future. You can't, you can't be in the present and in the future at the same time, and that's so much more effective than saying that with words. And and actually, a huge part of acceptance and commitment therapy is experiential learning and experiential practice, and it's just so much more salient and, and memorable.
2: That's fascinating. Of course. I mean, and we, and we do so many exercises with, with, with like brightly colored balls that we do, which are all about navigating, um, uh, complexity and navigating mm-hmm. ambiguity and communication and that sort of thing. But even, even more reductive is, is the simple idea you have. And, and I think about this because I often talk about the fact that you can't be creative if you're in judgment of self or others. And so part of this also, I think that worry element is also playing around with this sort of self-judgment stuff that, totally. that is like, oh, I'm lesser than because of.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Hmm.
2: That's fascinating. Okay. Fun. We, and fun. No, no, <laughs> a, 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 absolutely fun. Um, we always ask our guest, uh if they can end the podcast with a yes and story. Do you have one for us?
0: I absolutely have one for you. So I have tried to get up on water skis Uh almost every single summer since I was a little girl, Mm -hmm. probably since I was eight. I have never even come close to getting up for one single second. This year I turned 50. And when I went snow, I hadn't, I hadn't snow skied in about 25 years. And I got back on snow skis in 2019 and I only fell once. But the one time I fell, I really, I re-injured an already injured shoulder. Mm -hmm. Now fast forward four more years. And I'm thinking about getting up on water skis and I'm 50 and I'm thinking, I'm going to rip my arm straight out of my shoulder if I do this. Like, this is a terrible idea. Like be smart. Don't be a hero. So normally this is something I absolutely would have said no to. Mm -hmm. But then I thought, but like, what if, like, what if the very first time I ever get up on water skis is the year I turned 50? Like how epic Mm -hmm. would that be? And even if I don't get up, at least I'm I'm modeling perseverance to my kids. Cause I keep trying, even though I have failed more times than you could possibly count over, over 40 years. And so I tried and I fell and my, my falls are awesome. Like I fall yeah. straight back. It's hilarious on video. Nobody understands what's happening. And then I got up for six seconds and it was like one of the best moments of my entire life. And then I tried again And I did it. I did a whole loop Mm. around this little area of the lake, two and a half minutes, and I didn't even fall. I ended up letting go because I was so tired. It is hard hard to get up, but it is also hard to stay up once you're up there. And so that was a yes and. I thought like, oh, probably I shouldn't. eh." And then I thought, but what if?
1: Yeah.
2: I mean, that's-
0: like. One of That's the five rela- moments of my life.
2: Sure. It's our relationship with failure, right? We we we, we do so much to avoid it. And, and in our work, like the beginning improv classes are almost all related to getting you comfortable with being uncomfortable. Yeah. And that means failing aggressively in front of other people
0: Yeah. <laughs>
2: over and over. Because then once you've done it a bunch of times, like this is no problem. I can and- handle it yeah yes, and and, the, it's and not then that bad and then you can take that outside that classroom. you can take that to every other thing that you do because we are we are all failing constantly 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 and and and, yeah. and I think just culturally speaking right that, that that is we just get it drummed into us that you can't and right. it's just it's not like why we don't t- it's not like this science is new around us, right. Yeah. Yeah. The scientific method is literally failure, 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 failure. Yep. You learn by failing, not by succeeding. Totally. Yeah. And, and then you do it yourself. the
0: payoff is so yeah. much better. If all you ever do is succeed, you don't ever, like, get the zhuzh. Yeah, right. Or right. if I had tried getting up on skis five times and got up my six, like, woo, yay. But to fail for 40 years and then to be able to do it, like... I will never forget this. And my whole family was in the boat and we have it all on video and Uh they were screaming their faces off, which was like the other best part of it. And oh, I'm getting goosebumps again for days after that. My nine-year-old son kept going, mommy, you did it. Can you believe it? You did it. And it motivated him to keep trying because he just started trying and he hasn't quite been able to get up yet. So we're going back up there this weekend. I said, are you going to try to get up on skis again? He's like, "Mm
1: -hmm."
2: yeah. Yep, yep, yeah. that's right. The book is called Imposter No More: Overcome Self-Doubt and Imposterism to Cultivate a Successful Career. Jill Stoddard, thank you for coming on the pod.
0: Thanks so much for having me, Kelly. It was great to talk to you again.
2: Getting the Yes and is produced by Second City Works and WGN Radio. Our editor is Iridian Fierro from WGN. We get support at The Second City from Colleen Fahey, Mike Farinaccio, and Emma Smith. The music you hear at the beginning and end of the show is by Jukebox the Ghost. For more information about The Second City, you can go to www.secondcity.com, or you can email us directly at works@secondcity.com. At